this morning continuing in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2 and verses 13 through 23, run, ruin, and return the word of the Lord fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but well, I know you haven't been, but I've been out of the pulpit for a week, and so I need to kind of get my brain and my juices back flowing this morning and where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. And I got to tell you guys, just before we start, one of the profound things about the Gospel of John is the way that it is tied to the theology and the writings of the Apostle Paul. And one of the profound things about the Gospel of Matthew is the way that it is tied to the writing and the theology of the Old Testament prophets. Which, quite frankly, makes it a handful. The gospel narrative in Matthew opens on a young Jewish couple caught in the middle of an ancient conflict that they understood perilously little about. Now, undoubtedly, Joseph and Mary were aware that Israel was made up of the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and that the Messiah was promised to them through the line of David. Even Joseph's own line, they were aware that the current conflict, both politically and spiritually, between the Jews and the, the Romans, was foretold. I mean, after all, he was taking his pregnant wife to Bethlehem to pay taxes to a pagan Caesar while just across the valley the skyline was dominated by the temple of Yahweh himself they were aware of these things and yet they were wholly ignorant of the weight of the conflict that raged around them that which was foretold from of old they didn't understand what was going to come to pass they didn't understand the purpose that God had ordained for them specifically as individuals, as people, to fulfill. They were about to get educated. Their education would come through both divine revelation and soul-piercing travail. Their success will come through faith in the purpose and favor of the God who ordained all of these things to be. For the gospel of the Messiah is peace today. Peace today in the midst of ordained conflict unto the coming of future perfect and eternal peace. You see, the war was already real for Joseph and for Mary. The virgin had conceived. The angel had spoken. Don't be afraid. This thing that you are witnessing is of the Spirit. You will call his name Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is salvation for he will save his people from their sins. City on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Or you could say it this way. The Christ will be seen by those whom God intends, even when they are not looking for him. Even as he is denied by those that should be looking for him. Wise men came from the east, the magos, the sorcerers. Wise not according to title or to doctrine, but instead according to virtue and character. For when God revealed himself, they acted accordingly. They did hard things. They did dangerous things. They put their lives on the line. For the one they sought troubled the king, stirred him through. He was storm-tossed. And in his frothing, Herod reaches out to those who should be watching, to those who should know what the coming of the Messiah looks like. He reached out to the chief priest and to the scribes. Where will the Christ be born? And golly gee, they have an answer. They have an answer. They say he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And they have a prophecy to back it up. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And yet, these men who seem to have the answers and the references from which it comes are in full frontal denial. They omit the bulk of Micah's prophecy. They chop up the word of God with the prowess of an editor of a daily inspiration's tear-off calendar. You ever had one of those? They don't even burn good. Did you know that? You chunk them them in the fire when you're roasting weenies and that big old block of paper, it just kind of smolders from the outside. They chop up the word of God. Because those that claim to be the people of God often are unwilling to accept the tending that their God has ordained. And so in the last couple of weeks, we looked at Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 in some detail. I don't want to say a lot of detail, but in some detail. In Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the prophecy there includes the exile of 8th century B.C. Israel to Babylon. It includes the near future hope of the Messiah coming into the world, being born in Bethlehem, the one who will tend Israel in his way. And yet in this time, in in this coming, in this tending, his purpose is not yet complete. For this tending, this advent, is not Micah chapter 5 verse 5. It's not Micah chapter 5 verse 4. It's not his standing in the majesty of the name of the Lord. It's not a secure dwelling to the ends of the earth. Instead, it is in this coming humility and sacrifice. 
For the consummation is yet to come when Israel will give birth and his brothers will return. In the last couple of weeks, we've asked the question, if that is the case, if the fullness of his coming is here, and yet the Messiah has come in Bethlehem here, then what lies in between? And the answer is in the book of Micah and chapter 5 and verse 3. It's what we looked at two weeks ago. Everybody wants to talk about millennials and Gen X and Gen Y, but the reality is, is that what we are is the until generation. Micah chapter 5 and verse 3, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He will give them up. When? Until. This is what is spoken of by the prophet Daniel when he says that after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. We ask ourselves who are the people on which this will come? If, if after the coming of the Christ, but before the return of his brothers, where he stands in the majesty of the Lord and shepherds his people, and in the interim between them, what is going to happen? What is going to happen is that into the end there shall be war. Well, who shall this come upon? It shall come upon Christians, it shall come upon us. As the Apostle Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And therefore, this time of giving up, this time of war, this time of desolation, this time of exile, being the until generation to which that applies, we wrestle. We wrestle. And guys, Matthew is a book of wrestling. The very next thing we're going to encounter is John the Baptist. He's going to wrestle so hard that his head ends up on a platter. After that comes the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going to wrestle with the Jews so hard that he says everything that you know that the law requires, grace is going to require more. We're going to watch Christ himself wrestle all the way to the cross. And then we're going to watch 
the men and women that he has called to himself wrestle all the way to the point of their own martyrdom. We wrestle. Because we are the until generation. We are the exiles. We are the ones that live in the place to where to the end there shall be war. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says in verse 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Man, this fight is not against Budweiser. Boy, if it was, it'd be easy. It's not against Target. Target? It's not against Democrats, it's not against Republicans, it's not against conservatives, it's not against liberals. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Oh, if you only had to wrestle against Socialists. It would be so easy. The until generation is the generation into which Joseph and Mary and you and me are born again. Not into which we are born, it is into which we are born again. And in Matthew chapter 2, Joseph and Mary are beginning to realize it. The question is, do I realize it? And do you realize it? Joseph and Mary's education concerning the weight of glory has begun. But it is about to continue in earnest. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13, it says that, Now when they had departed, that being the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What we see in chapter 1 and 2 of the Gospel of Matthew is the Word of God being fulfilled. Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this was not the first time that that statement was made. Back in Matthew chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23, Gabriel spoke to Joseph and said, well, it's my opinion it was Gabriel. Surely it was. Maybe not. We'll give the disclaimer. The angel speaks in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 and says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, when you get... To Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this same statement is going to be reiterated, and I just want you to get into your head, and you think, you know, Pastor Brian, this is kind of a simple concept. Why are you driving it home so hard? No, get it in your head. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, wasn't the first time this was said. This was to fulfill the word of the Lord that was spoken by the prophet. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15 is not the first time it was said. And it certainly won't be the last. It was said in chapter 2, verse 5. Replying to Herod, the chief priests and the scribes said, They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. In verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in verse 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. What we see in the first two chapters of Matthew is the fulfillment of the word of God that was spoken by the prophets over and over and over and over and over. Men that spoke over the course of centuries being fulfilled in a matter of years. And in the second half of Matthew chapter 2, the word of God spoken by the prophets is threefold. Run, ruin, 
in return. Run, ruin, and return. First in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, run. There are very few places. Guys, let me tell you, and this is, you know, Senior Sunday. We've been talking about Connor. We've been talking about the, the, the young men that came before him that became men and are now men in this church. There are very few times, men, that you will look into Scripture and hear that what you should do is run. Very few. Very few. As a matter of fact, the flesh is going to want to run when Christ says stand. Man, what Scripture predominantly says is stand. But there are a couple times it says run. And friend, if it says run, when it, you know, I mean, you got thousands of pages here and it says stand, 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 stand. Every now and then when it says run, you better run. Matthew Chapter 24 would be a relevant passage. (laughs) Here's another one. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When they had departed, that being the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. And so this statement about the flight to Egypt by Joseph and Mary, presumably, you know, and I mean, we don't know for sure, but I mean, you got to paint this picture in your head like it's about 2.18 in the morning. I mean, that seems fitting to me. <laughs> Can't be an even number. It's got to be some, you know, 2.18, 3.27, something like that. Throw everything you can into the camel. It's clanking. You know, pottery shattering, get it in there. We got to go. Because something tells me, based off Joseph's previous experience with an angel, that when one shows up and tells you to do something, when you probably ought to do it right now. And so, when the word is flee, what you do is flee. And this was spoken by the prophet. And you go, okay, well, by what prophet? Well, You might think that it was quoted out of Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24 records the oracle of Balaam. He was a a hired gun to speak against the people of Israel. But the Lord God constrained his speech and forced him to speak the truth against his will. And in Numbers chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, it says that when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse, and he said, Now look, Balaam's a recidivistic maggot. 
But what the Lord forces out of his mouth is some of the most important things that are said about the gospel anywhere you will find in the Old Testament. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. The oracle of the man whose eye is open. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. And is for him. And what a statement. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him. He is for Israel like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he laid down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. I like that. That's good stuff. Do you like that? I do. I like that. Man, here's here's Jacob, which isn't Jacob, the dude. It's Israel, the people. It's the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here they are and their their tents are beautiful and they're spread across the land. And man, the king that's coming out of them is like he makes Agag look like a putz. God will bless those that bless them and curse those that curse them. Out of Egypt, I will call him. Man, I like that. Of course I like that problem is is Balaam was a prophet by force he is not one of the prophets nor is what is recorded in Numbers chapter 24 a direct quote in Matthew chapter 2 instead instead the quote comes out of Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You know, no matter where you look in the word of God, It's always about Christ. It's always about Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus would say, speaking to the Jews, that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And so I would encourage you 
over the years. I've encouraged you. Damon has encouraged you. Jim has encouraged you. Mark has encouraged you. I think even right now, both um, both Patrick and Toby are encouraging you to 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 dive in to what we call the Old Testament. This is not some separation. It is all one word. It is all the word of God. And every single bit of it, from front to back, speaks about Christ. And so when you look at the Old Testament, you're like, well, there's things that I read there that I don't understand. Hosea is a heavy book. Micah is a heavy book. Yes, they are heavy books. You know why? Because they speak about the heaviest of topics. They speak about Christ. And if you're reading the Old Testament and you're not looking for Jesus in it, you're reading the Old Testament amiss. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And if you've got a, a Bible that has the, the, you know, the, the study notes below the line, or it has the column in the middle that just has the references, probably a better idea, the column in the middle that just has the references, it's going to reference you back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It may reference you back to Numbers chapter 24, but that is not a Numbers 24 reference. It's a Hosea 11 reference. And you read it and you go, okay, there it is. The prophet spoke centuries before the coming of the Christ. He spoke about the Christ. And out of Egypt, he would call his son. I would tell you that the scripture, the prophets speak about Christ even when you don't realize it. Put Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 in context. Let's do verses 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You know, so here we have in Matthew chapter 2 Joseph, you're about to wake up, and when you do, flee to Egypt. I know, I know that when you were betrothed to this chick, you didn't expect to get what you're getting, but buddy, you got it. The virgin has conceived, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Yahweh is salvation. The wise men have come from the east, they have seen it. Whether they wanted to or not, they weren't even looking for it and they saw it and here they are and now Herod is going to have his head and what you've got to do you're about to wake up buddy and when you wake up run run to Egypt and this is not new the prophets foretold this centuries ago out of Egypt I will 
call my son and you're like, okay, awesome, not awesome. Why? Because the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the veils and burning offerings to idols. Awesome? Not awesome. No, wait. Awesome. If you're looking for the awesome to come forth from the decisions and the merits of men, you will never find it in Scripture. But if you wait for it to come from the decisions and the merits of God, you will find it every single time. And so in verse 3, the Lord says, Yet it was I. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. And I took them up by their arms. They did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them, and they did not know it. He was doing things. We read the Old Testament today and we don't even realize that it's all about Christ and what Christ is doing to provide for his people. And we're not in a vacuum because the people that were going through it were going through it not realizing that what was happening to them was happening to them because of the goodness of Jesus Christ. All along. They thought they were something because they were the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the reality was, is they were something because Christ was making them something. He fled to Egypt. Even though they didn't realize why they were fleeing. They thought they were fleeing from a mad king. And the reality was, is they were fleeing... Because Christ was painting in them a picture of what he was doing to provide for his people. They fled to Egypt. And I, and I want you to, to realize, and I don't know, we may not make it through it this morning. I'm trying. I'm trying to move fast. I want you to realize something. They fled to Egypt... Because of a murderous king that was triggered. Can we use that term? I, I don't, I, I mean it in the technical sense, like triggered. The thing that set him off was the wise men being wise. You need to follow me here. Chapter 2, verse 13. Let's back up to 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. And so they have a dream that is not completely unlike the one that Joseph has that tells them to flee to Egypt. But this is before the fact. And they are told, look, don't trust this dude. He is storm-tossed. He is stirred through. 
for all the wrong reasons. Don't trust him. Don't go back and tell him where the kid is. Go a different way. And so they did. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child. Why? The answer for why is in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The reality is that it was foretold that the Son of God would come forth from Egypt, that foretelling was not in a vacuum, but was specifically grace because the people had turned their eyes away from God and to Baal, and the manner in which these events occurred was because some dudes from the east who had no knowledge of the true God whatsoever, were assaulted with his reality in the creation, came looking for it, and when he spoke to them, had the virtue and the character to respond accordingly, and when they responded accordingly and did what they were told, it provoked in a madman a murderous rage that brought about the threat to the Christ his fleeing to Egypt and the death of uncounted thousands of baby boys. Now, how would you like to live with that? God came to me in a dream. And he said, whatever you do, don't go back to Herod. And I was faithful. Me and the boys, we had a little conference said we fear God more than men we've never seen this God before but apparently he is God I mean this stuff's been crazy and so you can take the Zoroastrianism or whatever and set it on the shelf we're going to do what this dude says and when they do what that guy says it sets off a chain of events that's only one or two events long that results in the murder of thousands of innocent children Gospel of Matthew, folks. The Lord comes to me and says, Run. Why? Because renation is coming. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, and then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is not academic. 
not academic. The Lord has seen fit to bless us beyond our station with children. We, we say it all the time. I hope we don't say it so much that it loses its weight. In, in the United States, for a church of our size, we are in the one percentile. He has blessed us with children. The blessing, one of them is on the front of the bulletin today. Michael says, contrary to popular social belief, that immediately out of the womb, boys are just different than girls. Go figure. The blessing that he has given us is no more precious to us than it was to them. Rachel is weeping for her children. You read about Herod and who he was. You go today and you can still see the things that he left behind. Let me assure you, he was not a subtle man. The way that those children died. Our murderers that are condemned to death die an infinitely more peaceful death than they did. It's not an IV. They were dashed against the wall and ran through with the sword. Do not say this for shock value but to give gravity to the situation that is at hand. The word of the prophet that was fulfilled comes out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And yet, if you're faithful to the text, the reality is, is that the suffering that is being recorded in Rachel's weeping is a precursor for future peace. I know this is not an easy sermon. As a matter of fact, guys, Matthew is not going to be full of easy sermons. The suffering that Rachel is bitterly weeping over is a precursor for future peace. Look at the entirety of the 
quote, well, let's just back up into Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 1 through 6. So in verse 15, you get, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping over her children. Okay, what is the context for that? Is it, is it slaughter? Is it siege? Is it famine? Is it murder? No, the context is... In verse 1, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. Man, that statement. The Lord appeared to him from far away. If I may digress for just a moment, and I'm going to just set the notes aside for just a second. In the contemplation, in the experience of who a holy God is, the first advent, the coming of the Messiah in the flesh, born of Mary in Bethlehem, is the coming of God, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. It is Him coming from far away. And if you don't believe it, all you have to do is wait until you get to the transfiguration. And Jesus doesn't step into their quote-unquote space. He just steps an inch closer and says, take a look at me now. And they all start going... He takes a step closer to John in the Revelation. And John doesn't go, blah, 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 blah. what John does is try to drop over dead. The Lord appeared to them from far away. And this is what he said. For those in the middle of run and ruination. This is what he said. From far away. You say, oh, Pastor Brian, can't you, can't you do some kind of exegetical trick? Can't you kind of loop this deal back around through some other scripture where far away becomes near? No, I can't. What he is going to say from far away has to be sufficient. And so here's what he says from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now don't forget your context. This is what is being fulfilled. 
This is, this is the fulfillment of what the prophet said. And the one that came before that that was fulfilled was, I called him out of Egypt because they had turned themselves to the Baals and turned their back on me. But even in spite of that, I've come to him from far away. And I said, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines, and you shall go forth in the dancing of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards, and on the mountains of Samaria, the planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit, for there shall be a day when watchmen will call. There shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. In this day, when Herod came looking for the watchmen, he said, Hey, chief priest, hey, scribes, where is he to be born? The best they could do was chop the word of God up and give him the most concise answer they could possibly give, lest they reveal what was actually going on. But in this day, In this day, those who watch will see clearly and they will say, Arise and let us go up to Zion. They won't give a murderous king an answer so he can fulfill his evil heart. Instead, they will point the people to the Messiah that is to come. For the gospel of the Messiah is peace today in the midst of ordained conflict unto the coming of future perfect and eternal peace. Or as Jesus would say in John chapter 16 verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Run, ruin, and return. If you want a two-part gospel that says things are bad, come to Jesus, things will be good. You will not find it in this book. It's not there. It's not there. What this gospel says is not things are bad. It says things are hopeless. Come to Christ. Die with Him. Suffer with Him. Pick up your cross with Him. And then live in peace eternally. That's what this book says. It's not a two-part gospel. It's a three-part gospel. And the first part starts off way darker than the two-part gospel starts off. It doesn't say things are bad. It says things are hopeless. Come to Christ die 
in order that you may live. Come on, guys. What's the average lifespan of a, you know, somebody that orders by number in the United States? What are the men up to now? 72 years? Ladies get a couple extra? You know, if you do well, you might see, we've had one see 102, right? It's a drop in the bucket to eternity. Run, the prophet says. Ruin, the prophet says. And return. Now see, at this point in time, you're thinking to yourself, run, renation is coming, and return, and things are going to get good. Now, let's see what Matthew has to say. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23, and I promise we're, we're moving. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. When Herod died, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. And if you read in Scripture the way that Herod died, you'll agree. It's a rough scene, man. And an angel appeared and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, this is the boy, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Just as a side note, folks, personally speaking, there are two places other than Arkansas that I've ever been in the world that I thought I could live there. Lots of places are nice to visit, but when you talk about places that you think you could actually live, it basically boils down to eastern Kentucky or the Sea of Galilee. That's pretty much my, pretty much my deal. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, so far, though uncomfortably from a kind of cultural, popular, doctrinal standpoint, so far exegetically, this deal is pretty much gone to rote. I mean, it's been A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, 4. You know, here is, here's what happened. Here's the prophecy that was fulfilled. Reference it. There it is. Things get messy at the end of chapter 2. Because here you have Matthew, the inspired author of the gospel speaking according to the Holy Spirit about what the prophet said, and yet there is no prophet that I can quote that said that he will be a Nazarene. And so what do you do with this? I think that narratives speak 
out of and to primarily the audience at hand. And if you are the audience at hand when Matthew was being written, then what you know about Nazareth is that it is absolutely a hole in the ground. And if you've ever been there today, it still is today. The only place I've ever been other than Nazareth that reminded me of Nazareth, at least in that part of the world, is Naples. And it's the same way. You go to Naples because you want to see Pompeii and you want to say that you ate an actual Neapolitan pizza. Those are the only two reasons you go there. Because the place is absolutely a filthy, broken down hole in the ground. Nazareth is the same way. And it's not that way just today. It was that way then. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in verse 43 through 47, it says that Jesus decided to go to Galilee And he found Philip, and he said to him, Follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found, you know, it says where they're from, right? You know, you can be from Greenwood, you can be from Riley Farm, whatever. There's places you don't want to be from. None of them around here, of course, right? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Had a friend in college. Who's now a, got lots of letters behind his name. First guy to graduate. Well, no, second guy to graduate from high school and his family. Second guy, first guy to go to college. lived in a trailer park with a, in a single wide that had a hole in his bedroom that I could see the dirt floor underneath. A little town called Old Washington that the people from Hope made fun of Old Washington. Now look, if you're from Hope, if you can find somebody to bang on, you've found something. That's Nazareth. I think that what is being referred to is probably Isaiah chapter 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and His Holy One, to one deeply despised. To somebody who you're going to look at and go, man, you're nothing. 
abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. You see, we, we look at the return to Israel. We see, we see, hey man, run because renation is coming. Run to Egypt. Run to Egypt because the fact of the matter is, is the Messiah is necessary because they have turned again and again and again to the Baal. So run to Egypt. And you run and renation comes and there's this destruction that is ordained by God Himself foretold from long ago by the prophets and it comes. And it comes in the midst of, the, it's just this weird, it, it almost seems sadistic in this weird kind of promise of future hope and in the middle of this is is Rachel just weeping for her children and then hey come back and return and you think okay finally we're getting some traction all of this suffering and all of this pain has been worth it and we're going to come back to Israel and the fact of the matter is as you come back to the part of Israel that everybody snubs their nose at The return was not a glorious one. It was to the dregs and to the slums. And and I don't know, this is just my opinion. I think God maintains his testimonies. I don't think you will ever see Nazareth in this in this existence until Christ sits on the throne. I don't think you'll ever see it being the place of the wealthy and the posh. It will always be what it is. So what the question is, is not is this the case, because man, that is the case. Like that is Matthew chapter two. It's not pretty. And 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 as I've been studying it, I just keep finding myself going back over and over and over to my childhood and sitting on a blue velour couch. Yes, we were we probably belonged in Nazareth. We had a blue velour couch. The only couch in the world that can make you sweat in January. Why did they even make those? I can remember sitting there, looking at the Christmas tree, reading Matthew, and I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, man, this is nothing like I thought it was. I don't blame my parents for that. I don't blame my preacher for that. I, I, I blame me for that. Like, I was reading it, couldn't... What, Why could I not see what was on the page? That's what's there. So what do you do with it? Connor? Pertinent question for you, man. It's Senior Sunday. You know? I'm going to flick some water on you, tell you you're a man. What do you do with this? Here's what you do with it. You find solace 
in the fact that you've seen in the gospel the difficulty of the life that you were already living. Because there is a discontinuity that exists in the church today. And I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at other people. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about all of us. U.S., Arkansas, Mount Zion, Sebastian County, I mean, all of us, us. There is a discontinuity that exists that says, because of poor doctrine that says, well, if you come to Christ, it's supposed to be peachy and like this, but, but then my life doesn't line up with that. I've got all sorts of hardship and I've got all sorts of travail and I've got all sorts of trial. And so I'm just going to kind of fake it till I make it kind of a deal where I'm going to pretend it's okay or on one hand or maybe I'm going to you know blame blame myself or blame my neighbor or it's it's somebody's fault, it's my fault, it's their fault. It's look dude For Mary and Joseph, the reason that they were dealing with the hardships that they were dealing was because God ordained those things to be. The gospel of the Messiah. Now here's the thing. Because of that discontinuity, there is this discontinuity breeds discontent. And I get it. If you've had a gospel preached at you from the time you were this tall, that if you will come to Jesus, everything will be mom, baseball, and apple pie. Then when it's not, all you can do is some form of one of two things, and that's either reject the gospel as a lie or try to gloss over it and make it look like what you think it's supposed to look like. And the reality is, none of those things. The reality is, life is hard. The reality is, if I can just... Can I be so cliche as to say, can I get real? The reality is, is Mama Francis gets old. reality is is elders get cancer the reality is is God calls men away to do what he has called them to do the reality is is people fail face the consequence why do you think Christ came the gospel of the Messiah is peace today and see and that's the thing is, is we want to do one of two things 
We want to deny it or we want to fake it. And what Christ says is have the peace to walk in it. The gospel of the Messiah is peace today in the midst of ordained conflict unto the coming of future perfect and eternal peace. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 19 of his first letter to them, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's not about this life, Mount Zion. It's not about, it's not about needing to run to Egypt as heartbreaking as it is. And you will find no one... You might, you might find people that are more animated. You will find no one that has a heart for the life of children that runs deeper than mine. You might, people, you might find people that talk better about it, that, that seem more animated and passionate about it. You won't find anyone whose heart runs deeper for the life of kids than me. I'm not the only one. This room is full of men that will go down for our children and not just for ours, but for some random one walking down the street. And that being said, with all adamants, it's not about Rachel weeping for her children. It's not about this life. If in Christ we have hope for this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Isn't it crazy that so much of what is being taught as being the gospel today would tell you that it is about this life? When in reality is it's not. If it was about this life, then the whole book of Matthew would look completely different than what it looks like. We've been saying it for years. I'll say it one more time. Well, probably more than once. Bite down. Get drug half to death. Die of lockjaw. The question is, is, is it worth it? Okay, is it worth it? And that is particularly relative right now because we're not, as a body, as Mount Zion, we're not asking this 
you know, kind of from an existential position. We're asking it from a, a very realized position. You know, I mean, Susie's got drain tubes in her head. Jim spitting blood. He'd been spitting nails, as, you know, six one half of the dozen the other. He healed up, though. He's good. Don't get me wrong. Is it worth it? I think that if Matthew chapter 2 is the word of the prophets being fulfilled, then the place to end this morning would be with the word of the prophet that is being fulfilled. And I think particularly that would apply to Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 15 through 17. I mean, let's pick the rough part. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And so here is the, here is the saint I mean, guys, you're going you're gonna to see Rachel in heaven. You know, Rocky was talking earlier about Dale and Ruby. You're, you're going to see him. You're going to see her. This is not just some historical figure. This is somebody one day you're going to know face to face. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. Now look, we don't talk about the work of men here much except for in a negative light. And that's appropriate because that's the way Scripture deals with it. But the fact of the matter is, is when you're talking about the work of men that is the extension of the new creation, then that worth has legitimate value before the throne of God. Keep your voice from weeping and your, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. For the gospel of the Messiah is peace today in the midst of ordained conflict. Don't run from the conflict. It's ordained Peace today in the midst of ordained conflict into the coming of future, perfect, and eternal peace. If you're in this deal for what Jesus is going to give you in this life, you're in for the wrong reason. You're in for the wrong reason. Be in it for what's coming to the next. And being in it for what's coming in the next, be prepared for what will come in this.
doesn't make us indifferent. Doesn't make us callous. Doesn't make us hard. Makes us real. So that when it comes, and it will, it's here for some of you right now. And Mount Zion, let me tell you something. If it's here for some of us, it's here for all of us. When it comes, and it will, we will not be surprised. Instead, we will have the kind of hope that when Rachel weeps, we hear the voice of the Lord that says, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work. We see it all around us. I could go on because I don't feel like I can bring the weight of this to bear. But I think I've done the best I can, so I'm going to quit.